0: I invite you to take out your Bibles or your device and turn to Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine. This is indeed the first Advent Sunday. And as John shared, the word Advent means coming or arrival. It's a season that has been observed since the fifth century. I'm going to dismiss the children for Children's Church. That seems to be just like something I can get in my head. Thank you for reminding me. Advent is a great time of year to reflect on the coming of Christ and to reflect on his birth. And so let's read Isaiah 9. will do this. May God add his blessing to his word. I want to suggest to you this morning that observing Advent is hitting the pause button in your life and it's very, very much needed. It is extremely easy to be swallowed up in the planning and the decorating and the shopping and the eating and the stressing that seems to be so common for this time of year. I know it has happened to me that Christmas comes around, I'm like, wow, it's Christmas. And we really miss this Advent season of preparing our hearts for celebrating Christmas and celebrating it what it's all about. And so there's two things that I wanna do for you to help you slow down and prepare your heart for Christmas. Number one is I've written a Advent devotional. It includes a Bible reading schedule that I recommend you use. It's five days a week, Monday through Friday, and it has a short devotional along with it. I'll have one available for you the next three weeks as well. The other thing that I wanna do for you is I want us to look at God's word as we consider a special Advent sermon series entitled Come and See to prepare our hearts as Christmas comes around. This morning, we're going to look at the words of the prophet Isaiah, a prophet who ministered to the people of Judah about 2,500 years ago. And let me first set the stage before we look at the passage. Judah which was the southern kingdom, the southern part of Israel, had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. They were very spiritual, and they were very religious, but their hearts were far from God, kind of like many people are this season of year. You can go to stores and hear the song played, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, You can even hear the song on Hallmark Christmas movies being played, but the truth is most people have very skillfully deleted Jesus out of Christmas. That's kind of how the people of Judah were in Isaiah's day. Their big concern was the rising threat of the Assyrian army. The Assyrians were the then world power. And they would soon invade from the north the kingdom of Israel, but also sweep into Judah with terror and destruction. So look how this time and the impending doom is described in chapter 8, verses 22. Isaiah writes, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Distress, gloom, darkness, thick darkness. But instead of turning to God, Judah turned to mediums. Verse 19 of chapter 8 tells us that. And on top of that, they blamed God for the misery they found themselves in. This is the age-old knee-jerk reaction. When people do dumb things, they turn against God, they ruin their lives, and then they become angry at the Lord for allowing these things to happen. Proverbs 19:3 says, "People ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they are angry at the Lord. They will not take personal responsibility." That was Judah in Isaiah's days. So here's the question that lingers in the background. What about the promises of God? God promised to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. God promised to David that one day a son would sit on his throne who would rule a rule without end. Are all these wonderful promises now erased because of Judah's sin? That's not a strange thought. I think if we're honest, all of us will have to admit that there have been seasons in our lives that we've been tempted to think the same thing. We've committed some awful sin, and we ask ourselves, is God still loving me? Do the promises of God still stand? Now, for certain, God would purge his people. Judgment would come. The Assyrians would come and take the northern kingdom into captivity. A little over 100 years later, the Babylonian army came and took the southern kingdom into exile to battle. But God remained faithful to his promise. God's heart's desire for rebellious people is to shower them with grace. He does not find pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the message that Isaiah preached in Isaiah chapter 9. The promise of God still stands firm. It is a promise of deliverance. Gloom will be turned into glory. And it is the promise of a deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And both come to us in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's first look at the promise of deliverance. Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah writes, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He uses very deliberately the same words used in verse 22 of chapter 8, to describe the distress that Israel was in and would be in. Gloom and anguish. To capture the dramatic change that was to happen when Messiah would come. He writes, in the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. When he says former times, he's really talking about his days, Isaiah's days, present tense. The contempt for Zebulun and Naphtali, which were two of the northern tribes, all the way in the north of Israel, was an impending invasion of the Assyrian army. We read about that in Kings and Chronicles. They would deal a major blow to the people of God. But, he continues, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. Now he's fast forwarding about 700 years, time of Christ. And he says that same area, the land of Galilee, has been made glorious. It has gone from gloom to glory. Now, this is the message. The land ravaged first by the Assyrians would be the land first to hear Jesus' message of salvation. We know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy because if you check out Matthew 4, 13, 14, it says that Jesus went into Galilee, the beginning of his ministry, in the territory of Sebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then it quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. From gloom to glory. Deliverance was going to come. God was not going to rescind his promises. Isaiah pictures for us what this deliverance looks like with three images. Light, joy, and freedom. Look at verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Living in a darkness so thick and so oppressive and so depressing that you do not see your way out. There is no hope. Chapter 8, verse 20 talks about people having no dawn. It never gets light. Perpetual darkness. In that darkness, Jesus came. And what did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. You follow me, you will never walk in darkness. The light of Jesus can dispel the deepest of darknesses. Light and joy. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is the gladness that comes from bringing in the harvest, from knowing you have enough food, that your needs are met. This is the joy similar to the joy that a victorious army has when the enemy is defeated and they divide the spoil. When Messiah would come, mourning would be turned into dancing and weeping into gladness. I think you would agree with me that If you know that gloom does not have the final say in your life, it's not the last chapter of the book, but glory is, it changes your perspective. It's like going to a doctor and hearing that you have been diagnosed with cancer, but immediately the doctor adds and says, it is treatable. You leave his office with a realism, I've got cancer, gloom but also with the good news that it's very treatable. Glory. Because Jesus has come, those who live in darkness, those who are drained and depressed can still find joy. Freedom. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as on the day of Midian. Yoke, staff, rot. These are all symbols of oppression, of suffering. The suffering that would befall Israel when the Assyrians came and later the Babylonians. But you have broken them, Isaiah says, as on the day of Midian. So what was the day of Midian? It's the story of Gideon, remember? How God reduced an army of 30,000 to 300 as they were ready to battle the Midianites that according to judges had an army like locusts in abundance. The point was that this was a single-handed defeat done by God. This was a supernatural act by God. In a similar way, deliverance would come for Israel. Messiah would come. He would break bondage of sin. He would disarm Satan. He would defeat death and bring in freedom. Freedom from beastly addictions. Freedom from nagging guilt that can plague us over and over again. Freedom from obsessive controlling thoughts that are contrary to God's word. Freedom from the weight of sin. Deliverance. Deliverance for Israel. Deliverance for his church. Deliverance for the nations. All of that wrapped up in a person the person of Jesus Christ. For us, it's fairly easy. We look back on this promise, on this prophecy, and there is no doubt in our mind that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the deliverer who's going to bring deliverance. But Israel's, or excuse me, Isaiah's audience did not have the blessing of hindsight. So what does Isaiah do? He gives clues. He gives signs. Who is the deliverer that is going to take people from gloom to glory? And That brings us to verse six. For Israel, this description was to recognize the Messiah. For us, it is to worship the Messiah, which is the goal of Advent, to prepare our hearts to worship the king. So as we look at verse 6, we learn about this Jesus, we learn about his nature, and we learn about his names. The first that is mentioned in verse 6 is, for us, to us a child is born. The point of that phrase is, to impress on our minds that Messiah would be truly human. He would be born. This is not an angelic being that is dispatched from the sky. This is a human being who enters into the world, a seemingly ordinary child, who enters into the world the same way as you and I entered into this world, who would become a man of flesh and blood. You could see and hear and touch and eat with and spend time with. Jesus had a real body who could die a real death. One of the things that I'm challenging you as you meditate on the miracle of Christmas is the miracle of the incarnation that God took on flesh that God decided to reduce himself to the size of an embryo. Amazing. A child is born, speaking of Jesus' humanity, a son is given. Now, some commentators believe this is simply the same statement but made and put in different words. But I think more is going on here than just that. This is not just giving us information that the deliverer would be a male person, but that this individual would not only be truly human, but also truly God. Because Jesus was not only the son of Mary, he was the son, of God sinless perfection the one who knew the thoughts of man the one who healed the sick the one who raised the dead see Messiah had to be infinitely perfect in order to present an infinitely perfect sacrifice for sin because that is what was needed. And since God is spirit, he doesn't have no body, he became flesh. So he could die. And because he's not just human who can die, a human who can die, he's also God, the Son of God, God in the flesh, his death was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. A child is born, a son is given. Jesus is truly man, truly God, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Jesus had the rights and the splendor of a king, who rules in the hearts of man, those who belong to him, who rules as head over the church now, but ultimately will rule as king of kings and lord of lords in the millennium and beyond, the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever and ever and evermore. As it says in verse 7b, He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this is not wishful thinking. This is not pie in the sky. This will happen. Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, will do this. No doubt about it. A child, a son, and his government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the deliverer, is all wise. Jesus never second guesses himself. We do. Jesus never learns something new, something that wasn't known to him before. We do. Jesus is never surprised about what happens. Paul says in Colossians 2, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are in him. You know Christ as Lord and Savior. You look forward to celebrating Christmas. Remember him as a wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Jesus is all-powerful. Hebrews tells us that he upholds the whole universe simply by the word of his power. Sometimes we think of Christ as a superhuman. He's God. The awesome God that has mind-blowing power. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is found in the book of Mark chapter 9. The father comes to Jesus with His son, who's demon possessed, falls on the ground, foaming at the mouth. And the father says to Jesus, If you can, please help us. And what's Jesus' response? If I can. It's like asking Michael Jordan if he can shoot hoops, asking Babe Ruth, Can you hit a home run? If I can, that's what I do. That's my specialty. Mighty God, wrapped in this tiny baby. Everlasting Father, reminds us that Jesus cares. Now, Isaiah is not confused, Scripture is not confused. We do not believe that the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. We believe in one God, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When it says everlasting Father, it points out that Jesus is fatherly in his dealings with his children. He's got a big heart. Treats us with tender, loving care. That same episode in Mark 9 that I just referenced... One of the most beautiful questions that Jesus ever asked is when the Father approaches him with his son who is demon-possessed, Jesus, knowing all things, knowing that he's going to heal this child, knowing that it's going to be an incredible miracle of his power, showing his deity, asks this simple question. How long has this been going on? Jesus cares about you. He's an eternal or everlasting father. When you become his child, he will never leave you an orphan. And you never have to attend his funeral. He is the prince of peace. That was Jesus' mission, to bring peace. The Hebrew word is shalom, which is much more than just the absence of conflict or the absence of war. It is wholeness, completeness well-being in every nook and cranny for us as children, for Israel, and for the nations. The promise of deliverance still stands, and the promise of the deliverer still stood as well, fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. So as I was thinking about that, and meditating on this passage. Two things I want to leave with you that hopefully can help you as you prepare your heart for Christmas when we celebrate the coming of the Deliverer and the deliverance he brought. We live in what has been called but in between the already and the not yet. The already is, we look back to Christ's first coming and we receive the blessings that his first coming bring us. Salvation, joy, light, freedom, peace, hope, and we praise God for it. But at the same time, we also face brokenness in our hearts, brokenness in our bodies, brokenness in our church, brokenness in relationships, brokenness in this world, that is the not yet part. And we live right smack in the middle. We have been blessed because of Christ's first coming, and yet we know the last chapter has not been written yet. It has been, it's not been fulfilled yet. Perhaps some of you this morning, and I'm very sensitive to that, I believe God has led me to move in this direction with the application. Some of us this morning, and if it's not you, you may know someone, identify very much with the words darkness, distress, and gloom. It's a mistake to think that just because you sing silent night, holy night, all is bright, all is calm, it is bright and calm in your heart. You may struggle with anxiety over the new COVID variant and the consequences. You may struggle with anger and frustration about what is happening with this country and you just cannot let it go. Uncertainty, how you're going to pay bills. Next month, a profound sadness because this is yet another Christmas that you spend alone as a young man, as a young woman, and you desperately want a relationship. And why is God not giving him to me or her? Or that empty chair in your living room that reminds you of the one who was and is no more now in heaven with Christ. Friendships that you miss. Health that is lost, relationships that are broken, prayers that are unanswered. Let's be honest. It is possible for a Christian to go through seasons and have times when you feel in the word of Psalm 88:18 that darkness is your only friend. Or in the words of Isaiah 8:17 that it seems like the Lord is hiding his face from you. It's a reality. That is part of the not yet. And we're fools if we're not honest enough to acknowledge that. But here comes the other part. During Advent, we not only reflect on the birth of Christ, we also patiently long for his return. If Advent means coming or arrival, we look back to his first coming, but we eagerly, longingly look forward to his return. That's another thing that should fill our minds and our hearts as we wrestle with this already, but not yet. As we rejoice that Christ has come, and yet cry with those who have loss just a week or two ago. When we look back, we see that God kept his promise of the coming Messiah. Christ came. We know as we look forward that God will not rescind his promise. He will come back. We can bank on it. And so we yearn for the day that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes where he will right every wrong, where he will make everything new, the time that God himself will be among us. And that sustains us in our brokenness, in our not yet we will go from gloom. glory. We have gone from gloom to glory because Christ came and we will go from gloom to glory because he will come again. I'm reading a book on the life of Winston Churchill who's one of my heroes from the past. It's entitled The Splendid and Divine. In it The author writes about what happened when Churchill was um, chosen as the new prime minister back in 1939, right on the brink of the beginning of World War II. The public and his Churchill's allies greeted his appointment with applause, they sent him letters and telegrams. One of his friends sent him a letter and this is what she wrote, quote, I can now face all that is to come with faith and confidence. I know, as you do, that the wind has been sown and that we must all reap the whirlwind. But Winston, you will ride on it instead of being driven before it. Thank heaven that you are there at the helm of our destiny and may the nation's spirit be kindled by your own. And the rest is history. But listen to what he said about a human being. I can now face all that is to come with faith and confidence. If you can say that about a human being, how much more can you say that about the Messiah? I can now face all that is to come with faith and confidence. Why? Because the best is yet to come. And so, celebrate Advent. Remember Christ coming into the world, the miracle of the incarnation, the depth of God's love for us sinners. But don't stop there. Look longly forward to what is to come, for he will come again. Father, we are so thankful for your eternal love and that by faith you have become our eternal, everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, our Mighty God, our Wonderful Counselor, and so much more. Lord, I acknowledge that some of us here would probably qualify their lives more with glory than gloom. You're healthy, you have a job, there's no conflict in your family, you have much to be thankful for, not to feel guilty for that, but to be thankful for. But Lord, all of us know that this is not the way it often is. And some of us here this morning, and I feel burdened for them, will qualify their lives right now with, at least a mix of gloom and glory. And so, Lord, I pray, especially for our brothers and sisters who right now are struggling with darkness, distress, and gloom. Father, as they look back to your first coming, may that give them joy and hope and freedom. But as they turn their face towards the future, knowing that you will come again, may that fill their hearts with even greater joy. So, Lord, we pray that for all of us as we start this Advent season, please, Lord, don't let us just go through the motions. It's so easy to get sucked into the spirit of Christmas that the world offers. And it's not all bad, but it's not what it's all about. Please, Lord, make us a people that grow in our love and understanding of you and what you've done for us. And grow in our yearning and our longing for all that you will do. And We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Have a good Sunday. See you hopefully on Wednesday night.